Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're going to talk about an issue that is really an important one. There's all kinds of evil in the world, and one of the things that we've said many, many times, including in our video, Christian Zionism, the tragedy and turning, the U.S. has a war-based economy. And so we're going to entitle this, War is the Issue. And in order to promote the war agenda, U.S. war makers, including the president and the Republican leadership, are telling perfidious lies of proportion not seen before. Two of many such lies and acts are discussed today by our panel. These are Seymour Hearst's amazing exposure of the killing of Osama bin Laden and the recent wave of executions by the Egyptian government including the death sentence of the former democratically elected president of Egypt, Mohammed Marsi, and literally hundreds of Marsi staff while the U.S. continues foreign aid to Egypt. These issues need to be discussed. Number one, with the growing demand for war coming from both Republicans and Democrats, Chuck Carlson thinks that the weakening economy demands a new war now. But he says in his recent expose, U.S. Treasury bonds, the godfather of all bubbles, the debt bubble is being ignored while the war makers in both parties are whispering, don't worry about the cost. We have always found ways to finance war and we will make this one pay. Chuck, would you like to give us some updates on your article, Godfather of All Bubbles? Okay, thank you, Tom. We talked about, in the Godfather of Bubbles, that the United States government has issued in our name now over 18 trillion, maybe closer to 18 and a half trillion dollars worth of debt, which of course is an obligation to pay, and someone owns those debts. They are securities held by somebody. Generally speaking, most of them are in profit sharing and pension plans, or at least the majority of them are, and many of those, uh, of course, are our own in some way, directly or indirectly, through our own plan, our own 401k plan, uh, maybe through an employee's pension fund somewhere. Or the biggest hunk of all is, of course, what supports the Social Security Trust Fund. Uh, Almost uh, $7 trillion of United States government bonds are in the Social Security Trust Fund. In fact, all the money in the trust fund is basically invested in these bonds. I said seven trillion, I believe the figure is six trillion out of the eighteen trillion total. So it's a great consequence to us that the value of these bonds remains there because many, many of our friends or ourselves are dependent on them. Since we actually posted our story on the twenty sixth day of April, the US government bond market has been in a tailspin almost consistently and and a quick look at it today reveals that US government bonds as measured by the 30-year bonds, have gone down a total of 6% in less than one month period. Now, 6% doesn't sound like much to us if we're used to having a stock. and We read about stocks that fall by half or something like that during the energy crisis or something. 
But in terms of government bonds, that's not supposed to happen. They're supposed to be stable. They're not supposed to fluctuate. And uh, many writers are now commenting on the violent fluctuations that are going on in the government bond market. So equating this 6%, what does that mean? That would be about a trillion dollars. So if you stop and think about this $18 trillion government obligation, these bonds, these investments held by someone would have lost almost a trillion dollars in a little less than one month. So this gives an idea of the violent fluctuation that is now going on. In Europe today, we learned that the uh, European Common Market, which has a, a central bank of its own, just like our Federal Reserve Bank, I suppose, that European Central Bank says that they're going to start buying $60 billion a month of European bonds. Now, that sounds like, gee, what does it mean that they're buying these bonds? What it means is that the European Union is able to issue $60 billion of new debt each month, and then the European Central Bank gives the European Union a checking account on that money, and they spend that and give it away to prop up the European economy. So you're seeing this massive inflation of debt in the European economy. And what we've said all along is that the logical thing is if you create more of something, it should be worth less. This is what holds true of potatoes. If you have a, if you have a bumper crop of potatoes, uh, you're going to find their supermarket price is going to be down. It's true of even gasoline. We recently had that go down when we found out that there was a lot more than anyone thought. Bonds, of course, have been, have been manipulated to go up for the last 35 years, and only recently have they shown signs of going down. So what we're saying here is that the not only the United States government, but also the European common market government is flooding the market with phony bonds that they're issuing that are, that are, that are being bought up in portfolios uh, that, that, that are held in trust for some people somewhere. And this is a horrible danger that this over-flooding of the bond market worldwide is going to result in a crash or a bubble. The word bubble is being used more and more uh, in, the, in the economy every day now. We, we hear it talked about quite often. And uh, the threat of bubble and the concerns for bubbles and so on. Uh, so this is the latest, Tom, is that the, the bonds have been going down. And that's, there's no, no reason they shouldn't. Uh, there's no reason the bonds should not go down because they're, as our paper carefully lays out, they are grossly overvalued related to any other kind of investment that you would uh, enter into. Well, would starting a new war help put off these financial concerns or further cover it up? Uh, Yes, Tom, and uh, that's a great point to raise because uh, as we look at what what way our government is, is trying to find to get out of from under this mess of creating this mountain of debt that's now becoming recognized, uh, the the standard way is, of course, to issue more debt and to uh, do it bigger. And the the standard method through all of history, going back even to the Roman times, was if you divert people's attention from their problems, the best way to do it is to get them involved in a war where some part of the population can be stirred up to say this is necessary, this is uh, justifiable, this is noble, this is good, we need to do this, we're saving somebody. And of course, this is where our churches fit in. They're the ones who are supposed to be standing up and saying, no, 
War is evil. Killing is always wrong. And preemptive killing, uh, the arrangement of wars, and with foreknowledge that you're going to be taking human life, is something that every, every Christian, every Christ follower should be thinking about. We always don't know enough as a way to resist, but we certainly should be able to respond to this uh, when asked. And our churches actually should think about it because there's plenty in scriptures addressing this issue of loving your brother and not, of course, killing him. And, uh, of course, I don't think there's any religion that doesn't recognize thou shalt not kill. So uh, thou shalt not instigate a war that kills either. And, yes, Tom, I think that we are in, in terrible danger now of our leaders trying to instigate wars and the most likely candidates for these wars are not just countries in the Middle East that have oil, as we've had in the last 25 years, but now we're getting focus on countries that actually are kind of powerful, such as Russia, and we're, we're, we're interfering in Russia's affairs on their borders, and we're actually threatening Russia. And the same is true, uh, we're placing sanctions on other governments the government is now threatening to put sanctions on North Korea. Now, we don't have to like North Korea, but to know that we don't really need another war there. Now, we had one of those in, what, uh, 1951. It seems to me that the instigation for war is very prominent. And, of course, a lot of members of the Christian churches, especially the evangelical Christian right or the Christian Zionist movement, are biting on this hook of this idea that maybe these wars are justifiable. Well, because partly of the concepts of the beliefs of, of end times, Armageddon and so forth, so these would be signs, signs of wars and rumors of wars and so forth. And so they can look at these events. We've talked about four blood moons and uh, how that's being ballyhooed as being signs of the end time and so forth. And that's been debunked in a couple of our podcasts. So you have churches that should be against this, but I think it has to do with the conditioning of Americans. We've been so conditioned. And, for example, we're going to talk about the exposure of the killing of Osama bin Laden by journalist Seymour Hersh. It seems to be a complete, purposeful, and total lie emanating at the president's level. It appears to reveal that there is no limit to how big a lie can be spun from nothing. The bin Laden story comes with phony photos of uh, both bin Laden and the president and his staff, including generals and Hillary Clinton, posing as if to be watching the attack that never was photographed on TV. And so we've seen the government lie. They lie to us all the time. We get cover-ups by our media. And so, Chuck, why don't you talk a little bit, or anybody else would like to talk a little bit about this revelation by Seymour Hersh. He's getting a lot of blowback from the media and our government for these charges that he's made in a very long article. It's about 10,000 words that appeared in the London Review of Books. Well, I could add a little bit. Seymour Hirsch is a, for those who don't know his name, is a very prominent writer. He's 74 years old. He's, he writes for the Washington Post and has for his whole career, as far as I know. He's written Pulitzer Prize-winning 
the story. So uh, though you might or might not like him personally, and he's kind of a feisty character, nevertheless, he's very respected as a researcher. And Hirsch has done a massive piece of research, and he's made allegations at the very top level of our government about the murder of Osama bin Laden. We are, of course, told that it was a glorious military event involving a wonderful plan and a brilliantly carried out firefight in which our Navy SEALs had to fight off Osama bin Laden's uh, bodyguards and soldiers and so on, and, and then uh, were forced to take his life uh, because he resisted, uh, reached for his uh, AK-47, and uh, so on. And uh, then, of course, his body was buried at sea as a, as a uh, gesture of kindness to the Muslim religion. Supposedly, that's the way Muslims do it, which turns out not to be so. Seymour Hersh has discovered that, in fact, Osama bin Laden wasn't protected at all. He was, in fact, a prisoner of the Pakistanis who were uh, putting him up in a kind of a safe haven. Uh, it was guarded from the outside, but he didn't have any soldiers on the inside of this place with him. The SEAL attack on it was botched a bit. They crashed their helicopter and it, it caught fire and they had to change their plans. And uh, as a result of this, they told us a massive tale of lies. It started out with uh, pictures of the president and, the, uh, and Hillary Clinton and generals, high generals in Washington uh, watching this firefight over closed circuit TV. Turned out there was no closed circuit TV. There was no firefight. They were posing for a photo in one of the offices in the White House. It turns out that Osama bin Laden was found because some uh, enterprising former bureaucrat in Pakistan realized there was a $25 million reward for turning him into the U.S. government and did so and actually collected the reward. And according to Hearst, that reward has been paid and it went to several people who he didn't name but who he referred to. And so it turns out that this whole incident of uh, the attack in Pakistan was a complete uh, fabrication from the very beginning. It was just there was no element of truth in it at all. And Hirsch is now being denounced for not having produced evidence of what he contends, but nobody on the government side has taken on one of his contentions head on and uh, set out to disprove it. So what we're having done is we're having the glorification of murder, and we're having a man who could have been taken, he was already a prisoner, by the way, was an invalid, probably on the verge of death. We're being shown pictures of him when he was in his strapping youth, but he actually would have been on kidney dialysis for years and was very, very sick. So Osama bin Laden, of course, could have testified on a hundred things that we really need to know about and are deprived of knowing about because he's dead. And this effort was simply to take out someone who could have been an extremely valuable witness in telling the American people uh, about what he knew from his side of this uh, conflict in the Gulf. It's the old idea of polishing off the old war and, and giving it a beautiful funeral so that you can get ready for the new war. And again, uh, at the very time that this whitewashing of this event is going on, we have active plans for wars in Iran, and maybe even in other countries, as we've discussed. 
Well, the interesting thing, Chuck, uh, about this whole incident, and of course it was dramatized in a movie, which I've not seen, Zero Dark Thirty. And of course we know that the military works closely with Hollywood on things like this. So it helps perpetrate the myths that were publicized by our government about the incident. So this is a major revelation what Hirsch has, uh, has done here. Yes. These people took tremendous pains to make sure that there is not a trace of Osama bin Laden left. His uh, body was uh, shot to pieces, apparently. Some say, well, in a wheelchair, though that's not been documented. And his body parts were thrown out over various places. It's not even known for sure where they were because the SEALs gave various testimonies about what they did with these body parts. But no DNA samples were brought back. No photographs of him were brought back. Nothing was brought back. None of the people who were in the compound with him have given testimony that's been recorded. He had wives with him. We don't know what's happened to them. There were children there. We don't know what's happened to them. A couple of men were killed. And I think one woman was shot. One of his wives was actually shot and killed with the false statement that he was using her as a shield and they shot through her in order to kill him or something like that. So this is our brave Navy SEALs in action. This is our president uh, in action. And can we trust people like this to tell us the truth about the next war they have planned for us? That's really the question. It certainly doesn't seem like it, and particularly uh, uh, just uh, a little bit about this film here. According to Wikipedia, the film's depiction of enhanced interrogation generated controversy with some critics describing it as pro-torture propaganda. So they've made up a story to glorify this whole thing, and Americans have been conditioned to accept our enhanced torture methods necessary to keep us free and safe from the terrorists. It is a giant conditioning process. And on the other side, the other issue we wanted to touch briefly on is what's happening in Egypt. Of course, the United States for over 30 years supported the dictator Mubarak in Egypt. And when he was overthrown and democratically elected leader President Mohamed Marsi was overthrown in a coup just about a year afterwards. And the United States has basically laid low on the issue, but as we have seen, Egypt and their military leader, al-Sisi, have actually become a full-fledged ally, or we would consider a Zionist ally of Israel. They're closing the border with Gaza, which is in dire straits after last year's attack by Israel, the IDF, uh, on Gaza. It's amazing. There is an open border, or it can be open, between Egypt. This is a very short border, but it's there, between Egypt and Gaza. And uh, in the past, the various governments of Egypt have shown sympathy for the Palestinian people entrapped inside of Gaza, though they have always been reluctant to allow open borders and allow any kind of massive immigration. But they have allowed people to go to hospitals, colleges, and actually they've allowed food to be taken into the Gazans through Rafa border crossing. Chuck, prior to LCC coming to power here, there was really a tacit allowance actually by the government, uh, Marcy and even before, of uh, these tunnels going into Gaza. 
And now that the military has taken over and they have destroyed all these tunnels, in fact, they've destroyed over a thousand Egyptian homes right there near the Rafa crossing to prevent any further tunnels, which were a And you make a great point here, Tom, and that is that the United States government is giving tacit approval to everything Egypt is doing by opening up our foreign aid to them, and they're now giving Egypt more than a billion dollars a year in foreign aid, which is uh, next to Israel, the largest foreign aid package given out by Washington. So if Egypt is doing all these things and the U.S. gives them this foreign aid package, it's uh, their way of saying, boy, keep it up. We approve. One thing that, that is most shocking was this wave of executions that Egypt is now carrying out. There have been some executions, I don't know how many, but they have now sentenced the, the elected president of Egypt, who they overthrew, Mohammed Masi, to death. And with him, 125 of his allies who were with him at the time he was captured and other times, there are now several hundred Egyptians who have simply been sentenced to death by the revolutionary forces. And what they're doing is just eliminating their competition who were elected. And the U.S., of course, is smiling at this by openly giving aid to Egypt, even though the rest of the world is, is outraged at these death sentences that Egypt is, uh, is handing down. They are just as brutal as those things that ISIL has done to people by beheading them in, in public, and, and these people are no more guilty probably than those who are being beheaded by ISIS. So again, you have the war machine cranking ahead here, and both Israel and now Egypt becoming war allies of the United States. Yes, going back to the uh, Pakistani instance here, the U.S. used their military aid because Pakistan is a fairly large recipient of military aid from the United States. So that was used, according to Hirsch, as a leverage to uh, negotiate this deal to capture and kill, eliminate Osama bin Laden. Do others have comments or questions? Yeah, Chuck, um, this is Glenn. Yeah, I was just wondering, it seems like with all the countries in the world with these central banks, I understand there's what, only three countries in the world that don't have central banks controlled by this cartel. Is this kind of overspending? You know, we see it happening in Europe. We see it happening in the United States. Is it happening everywhere? Well, uh, no, it's not happening everywhere, Glenn, at least to my knowledge it's not. But it is an epidemic, and it is very tempting for countries to try to spend to keep up. And the central bank scheme started in England in the 17th century with a man named James Patterson who initiated this idea, the Rochelle family, of uh, first uh, Germany and uh, Hamburg and then London and, uh, and then France, they created the central banking scheme into a sort of rocket science. And from there, it came to the United States. And the question is, who will resist it? And there was plenty of resistance in the United States in, in the early years. There were lots of people that absolutely said, no, we'll never have an official bank. We know what that means. It means they can fund anything they want. It means they can turn inflation up or create depression. It means they can control things by controlling the money supply. And so uh, 
our country fought the idea of central banks and on and off until 1913 when the Federal Reserve came in. Now, is everybody doing this? There are countries that have central banks that are not independently owned by a banking lobby. And the case of that is China, which has a central bank, and uh, it aids in their scheme of printing money. It sort of carries out that role, but it's under the control of the bureaucrats and the army that control China. So China's totalitarian government also controls that bank. So it isn't in the, it's not an independent printing press that basically controls the country. Rather, it's a method of fooling the people carried out by the Chinese government. Uh, okay. The same is, I believe, true in Russia, though I'm not totally sure. And a few other places, such as Venezuela, did indeed control their central bank. In Egypt, the Egyptian government of Mohamed Morsi never had control of the central bank, even though they were elected as president of the country. And it was the central bank of Egypt, which was privately controlled by people we don't know, uh, who came up with the money for the revolution that ended up getting Mohamed Morsi jailed. So Egypt, of course, uh, was controlled by its bankers rather than controlling its central bank. So I think in my opinion, and this is strictly my opinion, is that there are countries where the government controls the central banks, and then there are countries like our own where the central bank is controlled by somebody outside of government, above and superior to our government, who then controls our money supply and drags us around by the nose. Mm-hmm. So the issue is always who controls the central bank. Right. Follow the money. There is, of course, an epidemic of printing because countries are very hard-pressed. If they don't print money, their currency is liable to go up in value. That makes mm-hmm. their goods more expensive. It makes it harder for them to, to compete. So it is tempting for smaller countries to print money. And the best example of this was Switzerland that was thought of as being the we-will-never-debase-our-currency country that was thought of as a gold-backed uh, country. And in recent years, they have succumbed to the influence of uh, central bankers, and they have printed money in order to keep their currency from getting too high to make their their exports too expensive and their vacations too expensive in Switzerland. It's happening even there. Amazing. Yes, even, even they have caved in. So it's a good question. Is the whole world captive of the central banks? Certainly. The U.K., the European Union, lock, stock, and barrel, except maybe Scandinavian countries, we're not sure. And, of course, the U.S. are certainly controlled by outside control bankers. Mm -hmm. And I understand, if I'm correct, uh, North Korea and Iran and Cuba don't have these central banks. So we build them up as villains, and then we create wars to go in and take them over. And that's why those... Partly yeah. why those are, are the current villains. That's right. I don't think Iran has a central bank at all. I've never heard it mentioned. And you mm-hmm. can bet that if they do have a central bank, it will be under the control of the government. Mm-hmm. And uh, in North Korea, they are a total totalitarian dictatorship. Uh, they wouldn't ever think of allowing anybody to control their money. Uh, you know, North Korea executes people at the wishes of the dictatorship. I don't know where you heard the information, but I think that that information is probably reliable, that those countries don't have central banks. 
Okay, well, thanks, everybody, for your comments. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, and we, we are doing our part to stop another war. If you like this podcast, please pass it on to someone else. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.